Hello, welcome to my podcast, The Meiji Restoration, A China Contrast, and this is Episode 8, Exaltation and Dejection. In my last episode, I spoke about the industrialization efforts in Japan, how they employed the Zaibatsu system, and it was so successful, it was even copied by Korea. But of course, it came at great social and monetary cost. I also spoke about the constitution that Japan, the Meiji government, had drafted what its goals were, and the reasons why they wanted to do that. And how the emperor presented the constitution as a gift to his people in 1889, a written constitution, making the emperor the sovereign for Japan. It also created their legislative body, the Diet, which is very similar to the English parliament. It's tough to pigeonhole the written constitution. It appears to be a mix between a constitutional monarchy and an absolute monarchy. In any event, it was implemented in 1890. And the very first elections under that new government elected a hostile diet to the elite of Japan. This caused some panic within the elites. I also briefly talked about the Rescript on Education, a document that was drafted in 1890, a paternalistic document, basically a blueprint of how the Meiji government wanted the people, wanted its citizens to act in relation to their government and to their family. In this episode, I want to first cover quickly, a broad perspective on some of the international issues that faced Japan at this time. Before I get into the main object of this episode, which is the Sino-Japanese War and the triple intervention that immediately followed the war, these two events are very much connected to each other. And I also finally, in this episode, want to make some more comparisons with the Chinese Qing Dynasty. The Japanese government, I've talked a lot about this, had been saddled with these unequal treaties with five Western nations. And there were two things that the Japanese were primarily concerned about, two goals that the Japanese wanted to accomplish with respect to these treaties. And those goals were, one, first, do away with the extraterritoriality. Second, to abolish the tariff structure that severely limited the duties for goods that both were imported and exported 
into and out of Japan. The good news for Japan is that finally, in 1894, the English would agree to make these changes. And by 1899, other nations had followed England's lead. Since the Tianjin Treaty in 1885, Japan and China were on tense terms. The French and the English had recently made moves in Vietnam and Burma, and this made both the Japanese and the Chinese sensitive to anything happening in their backyard in the Far East. However, in the mid-1890s, it was Russia, which was the leading European power in the Far East. Japan was well aware of Russia's presence in China and Korea and what they were up to. Russia had an interest in building a railway through Manchuria in China. Against this backdrop, in 1894, the Tong Religious Rebellion in Korea brought China and Japan back into Korea. That religious rebellion caused the king of Korea to ask for help from the Manchus to help them with the fighting. And the Manchus sent military help into, into Korea. The Japanese protested claiming that the move violated their 1885 agreement. After negotiations had failed between Japan and China, the Japanese came full throttle into Korea. Japan sent some 8,000 troops into Korea, and on August 1st, 1894, Japan declared war on China. Many foreign observers believe, though, that the Japanese forces would be no match for the massive Chinese forces that they were surely to confront. However, the Japanese scored quick victories both on the land and on the sea, and they easily swept the Chinese forces away. The Japanese swept through Korea and into Manchuria. The Japanese had seven divisions ready to advance further into China if necessary. And these troops were better trained and better equipped than the Chinese forces. The Japanese Navy and Army captured Port Arthur, modern-day Dalian, and destroyed a Chinese fort there. The Manchus quickly submitted to peace terms. This culminated in the Treaty Shimonoseki on April 17, 1895. In that treaty, China gave to Japan Taiwan, the Pescadora Islands, and the southern tip of Liaoning Province in northeast China. In addition, 
The Manchus agreed to pay Japan a large war indemnity. China also had to accept the full independence of Korea and accord to Japan the same privileges and benefits that China had given the Western nations. The Japanese victory was initially applauded. And there was lots of praise that Japan had been such a great student in the game of imperialism. The Japanese were, of course, ecstatic as well. The invasion into Korea had been its first major assault into a foreign country since the Imjin War in the late 1500s. Japan had shown how far they had come. They had an international stage. China's defeat, on the other hand, proved that the Qing dynasty was not capable of coping with the challenges of the time and that the self-strengthening movement and all the other modernization movements in China at that point were merely superficial. Historically and practically, the Sino-Japanese War was a landmark for both China and Japan in terms of their modernization efforts. But we have to be fair and honest. The Qing Dynasty at that time, in its history, was failing and was in a, was in a tailspin for its survival. Episode 19 of my first season podcast series on the Qing Dynasty also discusses these, these events, but from the Chinese perspective. Now, I know I could spend quality and worthwhile time talking about the Sino-Japanese War, particularly what it meant to the young Meiji government. But I don't have that kind of time. And events were happening quickly then that would soon overshadow the Japanese gains and its self-adulation from those gains. As my podcast title suggests, dejection came to Japan. And it came quickly, barely after the ink had dried on the treaty with China that ended the Sino-Japanese War. Within one week of the treaty, Japan learned what it meant to put itself on the world stage, front and center in geopolitics of that time. Japan soon learned that the Western nations saw the Japanese foothold in Liaoning province and the Asian continent as a threat. The other nations had no problems with Japan having a foothold in Taiwan or the Pescadori Islands, or the Ryukyu Islands, for that matter. But on the Asian landmass, now that is a different story. Quickly, Russia, Germany, and France all together demanded that Japan abandon 
Ling, Liaoning province and leave the continent of Asia and give it back to China. The Triple Intervention, as it is, is and was called, did not want to accept the Japanese as full equals. In their plea to Japan, they argued that a Japanese presence in China would make the Korean independence that was declared in the recent Treaty of Shimonoseki seem illusory and threaten it or weaken it. The Japanese government had good military intelligence that the Russians were willing to back up their demands with force. So, the Japanese acquiesced for now. They did not want to confront Russia. Not yet. Japan would agree to return Liaoning province to China under two conditions. First, using Korea as a bargaining ship, Japan would be willing, willing to recognize Russian interest in Manchuria if Russia would agree to leave Korea to Japan. And the second condition was that the Japanese wanted a larger indemnity from China. This meant that China would have to pay twice to get Liaoning back. The first time were the initial indemnities they agreed to pay at the conclusion of the Sino-Japanese War, and the second would be this instance after the Triple Intervention, where they would have to pay Japan again for Liaoning Province. Now, each of the three nations that were part of the Triple Intervention, Germany, Russia, and France, as it turns out, all had other motivations for protesting Japan's acquisition. Let me start with Russia. Russia long sought direct access to a warm-weather deep seaport. Dalian, or Port Arthur, was perfect for that. It never froze. And Port Arthur was what the Japanese acquired from China, and now we're going to have to give it back to them. Soon after the intervention, China gave Russia a 25-year lease to Port Arthur after it had been returned to China. In 1896, that was followed by China's permission for Russia to build a railway through Manchuria so it could link Vladivostok with Russian territory to the west. How about Germany? Well, in 1897, it was piggybacking on their assistance to China in the intervention, and they used the murder of two Catholic priests to get a treaty with China for a naval base at Qiaqiao, China. Secondly, Germany was more than happy to accommodate the Russians with its interests in the Far East in order to divert Russia's attention away from European affairs. For France, it wanted Russian support 
or at least acquiescence in France's ambitions in Indochina. All three nations had dirty hands, as they say. Japan felt dejected and humiliated. They had been outplayed. The intervention, however, ironically served to push Japan even more aggressively toward their goals. The Western animus that had been simmering for years in Japan now boiled over and became a central rally call for the Meijis. The bickering and partisan fights that had had occasioned the first five years of the Diet melted away. They were all now behind a single purpose. Japan even adopted a new national slogan, quote, Asia for the Asians, end quote. Despite the West's opinions or desires pertaining to the annexation of the Leoning Peninsula, the Meiji government realized that they had their own interests to protect, including annexing the peninsula. In 1896, because of the intervention, Japan added six more army divisions. They also reorganized their cavalry and artillery units. What was Japan up to? The years immediately following the Sino War launched Japan into a major industrial revolution. That period also saw the country grow large, modern, urban centers. The 1896-1897 budget called for four more battleships, 16 more cruisers, 23 destroyers, and over 600 other sea craft. All of this to be added to Japan's existing fleet, By the end of 1903, it would own 76 destroyers. And the cost of this was enormous. In 1893, the Meiji government spent about 15 million yen for the army. By 1896, only three years later, that had grown to 53 million yen. A triple increase. For the Navy, it spent 13 million yen in 1895. Just three years later, in 1898, that rose to 50 million. From 1897, one half of the Meiji budget was appropriated to the military. From 1885 to 1895, coal production went from one point. 2 million metric tons to 5 million metric tons. In 1875, that was only at 600,000 metric tons. That's an over an 800% increase in 20 years. Railway mileage in 1883 was 240 miles of track. By 1894, 11 years later, it was 2,100 miles an increase of eight times in 10 years. 
By early 1900, railroad track mileage was at 5,000. It had doubled in less than 10 years. Since 1883, a staggering 2,000% increase. These were unprecedented numbers. And I am sure these were not unnoticed by the rest of the world. But where was Japan going with this? This is a good spot in this episode to end that discussion. But I want to get into some comparisons with China before I get into the 20th century. It is, of course, obvious and not difficult to see the huge disparity of the modernization efforts and the results of that modernization efforts that occurred in Japan at the closing years of the 19th century. The Manchus, 100 Days of Reform in 1898, and all their other previous modernization efforts were a failure. Of course, we know the reforms in China were, were really never implemented at least to full scale. It can only be speculated that if those measures that the Qing had proposed had been implemented, would it, would it have made any difference? As I have mentioned before, the leadership gap of China and Japan was wide, and it did not favor China at that time. By the turn of the century, Japan was vastly more modern than China, its technology far advanced. By the end of the century, Japan had already copied and implemented, as demonstrated in the Sino War, Western imperial conquer models. This was characterized by Japan's colonization efforts on Korea and Taiwan and the Ryukyu Islands. Adding to its status was the implementation of a Western-like constitution. The question always had to be, however, short of Japan going full Western, to assert by force their interests outside of Japan, would that ever be enough for them to be taken seriously and garner respect? What I am driving toward is how much did, or how much of a role did bigotry and racism play in the Western nation's judgment and respect of both China and Japan at that time? We know those cultures would suffer from pejorative references. And how can this be measured quantitatively? More importantly, should all of this be part of the common and usual historical discussion? Wherever that might lead, I don't know. In the next episode, I will discuss the build-up to the Russo-Japanese War and its immediate aftermath. Japan would become a major world power. Thank you. It has been my pleasure.